Daniel chapter 8, and we'll read the chapter, there's 27 verses, and right at the end of Daniel chapter 8, it is encouraging that after he has received a vision and also the interpretation of it, it says that Daniel fainted and was sick certain days. And so if you're overwhelmed by this ministry, then you're in good company. So Daniel chapter 8 and verse 1, in the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared unto me. Even unto me, Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. And I saw in a vision, and it came to pass when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was by the river of Ule. Then I lifted up mine eyes and saw, and behold, there stood before the river Aram, which had two horns, and the two horns were high. The one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last, and I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward, so that no beast may stand before him, neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand, but he did according to his will, and became great. And as I was considering, behold, an he-goat came from the west in the face of the whole earth, and touched not the ground, and the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran unto him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler against him, and smote the ram and brake his two horns, and there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong the great horn was broken, for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. And out of one of them came forth a little horn, which waxed exceeding great toward the south and toward the east and toward the pleasant land. And it waxed great even to the host of heaven. And it cast down some of the host and of the stars to the ground and stamped upon them. Yea, he magnified himself even to the prince of the host. And by him the daily sacrifice was taken away and the place of his sanctuary was cast down. And an host was given him against the daily sacrifice by reason of transgression, and it cast down the truth to the ground, and it practised and prospered. And I heard one saint speaking, and another saint said unto that certain saint which spake, How long shall be the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation, to give both the sanctuary and the host to be trodden underfoot? And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. And it came to pass when I, even I, Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning, then behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Ule, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man to understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he, fit, and when he came, I was afraid and fell upon my face. But he said unto me, Understand, O son of man, for at the time of the end shall be the vision. Now, as he was speaking with me, I was in a deep sleep in my face toward the ground, but he touched me and set me upright, and he said, Behold, I will make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation, for at the time appointed the end shall be. The ram which thou sawest having two horns are the kings of Media and Persia, and the rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full, a king of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences shall stand up, and his power shall be mighty, 
but not by his own power. And he shall destroy wonderfully and shall prosper in practice and shall destroy the mighty and the holy people. And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand and he shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes but he shall be broken without hand. And the vision of the evening and the morning which was told is true. Wherefore shut thou up the vision for it shall be for many days. And I, Daniel, fainted and was sick certain days. Afterward I rose up and did the king's business, and I was astonished at the vision, but none understood it. Now that's the reading. And we do trust that God will help us in our understanding of this very important, this incredible chapter of the Bible. Now let me give you a an outline of the chapter, a structure, and then we'll work our way through it. So if you're taking notes, here's the, here's the verse-per-verse structure of, of the section. So in verses 1 and 2, we're introduced, uh, broadly speaking, to the vision itself. And Daniel explains when it takes place and where he was as it took place. And then in verse 3 down to verse number 8, we're introduced to two animals, a ram and a goat, and these are symbolic, and we learn what the symbolism is later on. But we're told about them, and we're told about their interaction. Then in verse 9 to verse 14, what follows is the rising up and reign of what is called the little horn, and we'll explain that as we come to it. Then we get to verse 15 down to verse 19, and Gabriel, the angel, is introduced And he's going to provide an interpretation of what we've had brought to us in the first part of the chapter. And so from verse 20 to 21, there is the interpretation of verse 3 down to verse 8. That is the ram and the goat. And then from verse 22 to verse 26 is the interpretation of verse 9 to 14, the rising up and reign of the little horn. And then in verse 27, we have Daniel's response to that vision. And we'll work our way through that structure and we'll seek an understanding of it. Now, the broad and overarching theme of this chapter is this. As Daniel is writing, he's given a glimpse by vision of what lies ahead, the future. And in particular, the future of evil men who will rise to prominence and have empires and dominate the then known world as it is. This is a prophecy about empires and about emperors, about how it is that they come to prominence and how it is that they lose that prominence. From the divine aspect, it is how it is that God raises men up to rule and to dominate other men and how it is that he then overthrows them. And God's plan is accomplished by the rising up and by the overthrow of these emperors and their empires. And we're broadly speaking about Gentile empires and their relationship to God's precious people, Israel, and how it is they connect to Israel. There were other empires in world history. These are not the only ones, but these are the significant ones in God's dealings with the nation of Israel and the interaction of these empires with Israel in particular. And so it is 
an interesting fact that when you look at the book of Daniel, and I mentioned this last time, that when you come to chapter 8, the original language in which Daniel was written changes. From chapter 2 to chapter 7, it's been in Aramaic. And now it reverts to Hebrew again. And that's appropriate because chapters 2 to 7, well, that's dealing in principle with something very different from chapter 8 on. When you get to chapter 8 on, it is, as I've said, particularly Gentile empires and emperors and their relationship with God's people. Hence, I think, the switch back to the Hebrew language. Well, as we look at this, let's get into the first two verses to see what it is that takes place, when it takes place, and what is actually taking place as this chapter unfolds. So in verse number one, we learn this, that Daniel receives, for what was to him, a second vision. Chapter seven is the first vision, then chapter eight, the second vision. Now, it's not the first and second vision of the book of Daniel, but these ones that preceded chapter seven were not given to him, but rather the interpretation was given to him of other people's vision. Now he is getting visions from God in chapter seven and in chapter eight. And so the first vision was in the first year of Belshazzar's reign. This one is in his third year. So two or perhaps even three years after chapter seven. That's the time frame. And then in verse number two, notice this. It says that I saw in a vision, it came to pass when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the promise of him, I saw in a vision, I was by the river and so on. Now Daniel, I would judge, has not moved 220 miles east of Babylon, 150 miles north of the Persian Gulf, to what is modern day Iran, but rather like John, being carried away in the spirit to a great and high mountain, as it happened in Revelation 21 and verse 10. The same thing is happening to Daniel. He's being transported by vision to Shushan, to Susa, the capital of Elam. And later on, the Medes and the Persians under Cyrus will affirm that as a royal city. That, by the way, is where Esther sat on her throne as queen, uh, who sat in the palace built by uh, Darius in the city of Shushan. That's where Nehemiah, by the way, was to return from there to Jerusalem when you read his writings to rebuild the wall. He was commissioned and departed from this city. And so it is from that place that he receives this vision. Now notice verse 3 down. He sees, first of all, a vision, and there is a ram which had two horns. The two horns were high, one was higher than the other, and the higher one came up last. Now, we understand from later on in the chapter what this symbolises. We're told. This symbolizes Medio Persia, its empire. The longer, stronger, higher horn indicates that one aspect of that empire was stronger than the other, and it was Persia, which overwhelmed the Medes. So you had the Medes and the Persians came together in empire, but the Persian aspect of it dominated ultimately that empire. In fact, the ram was the symbol under which the Persians marched to war. So we're introduced to this animal, which represents this empire. Now you get to verse 4, and it says that the ram is now on the move. And it's pushing westward and northward and southward. And notice, no beast might stand before him. Neither was any that could deliver out of his hand. He did according to his will, and he became great. 
So there, in summary, in picture form, is the history of the Medo-Persian Empire. King Cyrus and his successors, he extended their empire westward, northward, and southward. And it went west, it took Syria, Asia Minor, Babylonia as it was then. It then pushed north and took the regions around the Caspian Sea and Armenia. It pushed south, it took Egypt, even went as far as Ethiopia. And no one could stop them. The Medo-Persian Empire was, an, was a huge empire with a huge army. And it was, for a while, indestructible and unbeatable. Until verse 5. Then in verse number 5, and remember Daniel has seen this in a vision. This is, this is the future unfolding for him by way of a vision. So it says, and as I was considering, as he's thinking about that, then what he sees is that a he-goat comes from the west on the face of the whole earth, doesn't touch the ground, and had a notable horn between his eyes. And this is a picture of, and we'll learn this later, of Greece. Now the ram looks invincible, the Medo-Persian Empire, until it's destroyed by this male goat. And it comes from the west, it comes so fast it doesn't even touch the ground. And the whole earth feels its fury. And he's got this conspicuous horn between his eyes. And that would indicate Greece and the horn would be Alexander the Great. We learn that in verse 21. We learn that the rough goat is the king of Grecia. And the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. And the first king of a united Greece was Alexander. Before Alexander, there were Greek city-states. Um, Alexander's father, Philip, was king of Macedon, Macedonia. And there were different city-states such as Athens, Sparta, uh, Macedon, and they were in a conglomerate. But under Alexander, he united them as a nation and he went to war. And that is pictured there at the age of 22, with a small mobile army of between 35 and 40,000 men, he began his campaign to liberate these Greek nation-states and the whole country covered by the area of Greece from the threat of Persia, Medo-Persia, for once and for all. And he didn't stop. He destroyed them and then he kept going until he conquered the then-known world right to India itself. Now... This all goes back to something you've probably seen in a film, which is the, the invasion of the Greek states by Xerxes, the Persian um, army under Xerxes, opposed by Sparta. Now, if you don't know the history of this, it's a fantastic um, history to read. So um, Pers the Persian army, by the way, was a million strong. That's, how, that's the size of it, and it had the largest navy ever assembled. And they decided to come and to conquer the Greek states, having conquered much else in the then known world. And so they landed, they had to come through this particular narrow um, gap, I can't pronounce the name of it, but there was this uh, sort of gap in the mountains, and 300 Spartans with 1,600 other Greek soldiers held a million Persian soldiers at bay for three days. And they killed 20,000 
Persian soldiers and they were all killed themselves. So the 300 held up the Persian army for three days. That delay, by the way, enabled the Greek navy to come round and defeat the Persian navy and cut off that method of retreat from the army. I read some books about this in my summer holidays last year. It's actually fascinating to read about how this took place. There was a massive naval battle at a place called Salamis. And as a result of being cut off, Xerxes was forced to come on land in battle at a place called Plataea, which is one of the most famous battlegrounds in the whole of history. And the Greek states came together under the leadership of Sparta, that warrior state, and they defeated Xerxes. And Xerxes had to retreat, and he returned home in shame. And that, by the way, fits neatly into the book of Esther, because it's after the defeat of the Persian army that the book of Esther takes place, which is significant as to why it was that Queen Vashti was out of favour, and you can read the history of this, and why Esther became in favour. It's all connected. And what else is connected is this, that 150 years later, the Greeks had never forgot the Persian army's occupation. And although they had been defeated, nevertheless, Alexander came to power and was determined to completely destroy the Persian Empire as a result of what had taken place 150 years prior. And so it says, he does this, and look at verse number 6 and 7. It tells us about that in the vision. It tells us that the ram that had two horns, which was standing before the river Medo-Persia, then the he-goat runs to him in the fury of his power. That's Alexander with his 40,000 mobile troops. And he comes with the fury that was so um, characteristic of that Greek army. It was mobile, it was fast-moving, and it was changing the way the armies fought. And it says that he smote the ram, he broke his two horns, there was no power in the ram to stand before him. He cast it to the ground, he stamped upon it, and there's none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Alexander and his Greek armies attacked them with savage fury and decisively destroyed the Persian Empire. So it says in verse 8, as a consequence, therefore the he-goat Alexander and the Greek army waxed very great. And so it was. You have the Greek Empire coming to the fore in history. Alexander from the age of 22 until the age of 33 was commanding that army. He went to the far ends of the world. He then was completely overtaken with his own importance. At the age of 33, he retreated to his new capital city, which became Babylon. And there his court became debauched and his court became ineffective and he lost his connection with his army. And actually, at the age of 33, having conquered the world, he died in a drunken stupor in Babylon. And it says in verse 8, that he waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And he was broken at the peak of his power. Completely different story to the Lord Jesus, who died at the same age. And Alexander conquered the world with force, and was completely taken up with his own importance, and completely lost his way and died in a drunken stupor and disgrace in Babylon. 
33 years old. He is a very big contrast to the Lord Jesus, who came, who conquered in a completely different way and died in triumph in Jerusalem, rising again from the dead, 33 years of age. And so they became great and powerful overnight in verse 8, and at the pinnacle of his power he dies, and as a consequence of that, his kingdom is divided into four. So we read about that as well in verse number um, 8. For it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. And history tells us that's exactly what happened. So remember, Daniel's looking at this prophetically. None of this has taken place when he writes this. And when you look back at history, you discover that this has been fulfilled in minute, accurate detail. It's one of the great affirmations of the authenticity and integrity of Scripture is fulfilled prophecy. And this has been fulfilled extremely accurately. So out of the Greek empire under Alexander, it was divided amongst four of his generals according to history and as we see according to this text in verse number eight. These four notable ones, Cassander, one of his generals over Macedon and Greece, I can't pronounce one of the names and I'm going to try. One of the other generals with a weird name over Thrace and Asia Minor. Seleucius over Syria and Babylon. And Ptolemy over Egypt. And by the way, Ptolemy is a name associated with the Roman Empire, with Caesar, with Julius Caesar who went down. Uh, and there's a whole thing there that you can read in history about that. But it says this, that out of them, out of these four, came forth a little horn which waxed exceeding great toward the south, toward the east, and toward the pleasant land. Now, history tells us there's a gap of about 120, 125 years between the rising up of Alexander and his division of his kingdom into four, and then the rising up again out of one aspect of that kingdom of another man of great power and authority, the little horn. And so this vision now narrows down its focus to just one of them. Not four, but one area and one man coming out of that area. And a little horn emerges, grows extensively toward the south, that's Egypt, towards the east, that's Persia, towards the beautiful land, that's Israel. Now history tells us that that actually took place. But we're going to see that the language that describes what did take place wasn't fully fulfilled historically but will have a, full, have a complete fulfillment in a man that's yet to rise. The ultimate emperor over the ultimate human empire, which is yet to take place on earth. So there was a man called Antiochus Epiphanes, strange name, that was actually his title that he took for himself. He rose up out of one of these aspects, one of the four areas of the Greek empire over Seleucus. He came up many years after the death of Alexander. And he went south and he went east, but he also attacked the people of God in Israel, that pleasant land. That's the description of, Egypt, of Israel. This little horn is not the horn that we saw in chapter 7, but rather this is the horn that comes out of the third kingdom of Greece. Now what about this man Antiochus Epiphanes? You can read about him historically. He tried to conquer Egypt, but the history books tells us that he was defeated by the growing Roman threat. 
And Rome is coming to power at this time. So in order to strengthen his empire, he tried to unify it and impose the Greek language across his empire, their culture and religion. And his subjects included Israel and the Jews. So history tells us that he made it unlawful for the Jews to read the Old Testament scriptures, to observe the Sabbath, to practice circumcision, or do anything else connected with the one true God. Those Jews that disobeyed were massacred. In one assault in Jerusalem, over 40,000 Jews were killed in three days, and 10,000 taken into captivity. It says in verse 11 and 12 of chapter 8, he magnifies himself even to the prince of the host. He proclaimed himself equal to God. The prince of the host being a title of God. And his reign of terror began in Israel. It's described here. He stops the daily worship of sacrifice. He destroys the place of God's sanctuary. He took the word of God and he counted it worthless by trampling it to the ground. And history tells us he did all of these things against the people of God. If you look at the book of Josephus, that Jewish historian who was actually writing for Roman paymasters, whatever they write, you need to take a pinch of salt and understand that lens to look through that. But also from the books of the first and second Maccabees, you learn this, that he systematically looted the temple of its treasure. He took away the golden altar, the table, the lampstand. And this is also what he did. He put an idol in the holiest of all to the Greek god Zeus. And he sacrificed a pig on it. Which was an absolute abhorrence to the people of Israel. Which, by the way, is all pointing forward to the Antichrist and what he will do in a future day in relation to a temple where he will go in and sit down as the abomination of desolation and seek to be worshipped himself. Antiochus Epiphanes did it, but he did it in a way that's yet to be fully fulfilled. He's a picture of a coming Antichrist. And actually, all this is going on, and you come to verse number 13 to verse number 14, and you discover that one angel is speaking, one saying, one angel is speaking to another and saying, how long is this going to go on for? How long shall the vision concerning the daily sacrifice and the transgression of desolation, etc., etc.? And the answer is this, six years and four months. It's a precise time limit for this, historically. So if you're testing the veracity of Daniel as a book, you can test that in history. Well, that's true or not? It's no surprise that it is true. And... This went on for six years and four months and Antiochus Epiphanes was overthrown by a Jewish rebellion under Judas Maccabee on the 25th of December 165 BC when the holy place and the holiest of all in the temple was cleansed on that day by a revolt by the Jews right on the time limit given by Daniel the prophet. It's actually unbelievable when you examine the detail of it and you see the historical account, which, by the way, is the modern-day festival of Hanukkah, which means dedication, which celebrates the rededication of the temple when Antiochus Epiphanes was destroyed and the Syrian oppressors were taken away. 
the Jews still celebrate that rededication of the temple with that festival. So you've got all of this going on. Daniel sees it all. And Daniel's wondering, what does all this mean? Well, God sends Gabriel to give an interpretation. And in verse 15 to verse 16, you're introduced to Gabriel and the interpretation begins. Now, who's Gabriel? Well, Gabriel is an angel. He's only one of two angels named. You've got Michael and you've got Gabriel. And Gabriel appears here. He appears 13 years later in Daniel chapter 9, at the end of it. He appears 500 years later. So he's still about 500 years later when he appears to Zacharias, the priest, to announce the birth of John Baptist. Six months later, he's still here and he announces to Mary the incarnation of the Son of God. Gabriel seems to be a communicator to mankind of news and it's of good news. It's good news when uh, John the Baptist is going to be born. It's good news when uh, the incarnation of the Son of God is being announced. It's probably Gabriel, I don't know, who announces to Joseph about the Lord Jesus being born. And here it's Gabriel that comes to Daniel to give him the understanding that what Daniel has seen is good news because it's telling Daniel that no matter what happens, remember Daniel's in Babylon, no matter what happens with these Gentile empires and emperors and their oppression of the people of God, the nation of Israel, God is the whole thing under control. The whole story has been planned in advance. It's not just known to God. God in his sovereignty will allow men to do their worst and work out their evil practices. But God is over it all. And it will all work together to fulfill his purpose. Not for the destruction of his people, but for their ultimate exaltation in a coming day. And for their blessing and the keeping of his covenant promises to them. God keeps his promise. And by the way, the detail of these prophecies in the book of Daniel, not just this one, are a tremendous affirmation of the reliability and the veracity of the word of God. It is a test as to whether you can trust it, that God gives us such detail before it takes place so that we can go back and test it and we can have our hearts encouraged that God's word is accurate, precise. So if it's accurate and precise in relation to empires, it's accurate and precise in relation to individuals. If God can control the movement of empires and provide timelines for them rising and falling, God can control the details of our lives. We can trust him and his sovereign authority and power and promises. So Gabriel's got the job of telling uh, Daniel what this all means, and we saw that he identifies in verse 20 and 21, he identifies the ram as Medo-Persia, the he-goat as Greece and its first king, and that's the great horn, and then the four kingdoms that arise from Alexander's conquest in verse 22. He tells him all of that. But the main burden of Gabriel's message concerns this little horn, I've identified historically as Antiochus Epiphanes and him being a picture of a man yet to rise up. Now the reason I'm saying that is that the language used is speaking about the end of man's 
history on earth, the end of man's control, the end of man's sin and man's violence against God and his people. Look at the language in verse 19. Look at the language at verse 23. He says, Behold, I make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation. For at the time appointed, the end shall be. Look at verse 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom, when the transgressors are come to the full. He's speaking about the culmination. He's speaking about the end times. He's speaking about things in their ultimate, in their, their, their fullness. And when man's empire upon earth is seen in its ultimate, that is yet to take place. And it will take place. And it will take place under the rule of the man that the Bible calls the Antichrist. When transgressors are come to their full. Now he'll speak more about this later on in the book. But he introduces us to this Antiochus Epiphanes and, as I say, that which speaks of a coming Antichrist. They are all Antichrist in nature, these men. But the Antichrist, who bears all of these characteristics in the, in the, the fullness of these characteristics, has yet to come. Satan's man. His counterfeit of Christ. His, his embodiment of opposition and rebellion against God. The one who epitomises and controls man's power at its zenith. No man will have greater power on earth apart from the Lord Jesus, but no ungodly man will have greater political or religious power than him. No man will have greater resources at his disposal militarily, economically, religiously than him. No man will wage war against Israel like he will do. And no man will come and be destroyed by the Lord Jesus as he will be in a coming day. Dramatically destroyed. Look at his character. And remember the double application. A king of fierce countenance he is described when we come down to verse number 23. And the Antichrist and Antiochus Epiphanes bore this character, but the Antichrist will be of fierce countenance. It means insolent. It means a willingness to be harsh and violent. So you go forward in other scriptures, you bring them together, particularly later on in Daniel 9, and you discover this, that the Antichrist is a man who will rise up to prominence suddenly and dramatically. According to 2 Thessalonians 2, he will have a revelation on earth. One minute he won't be in the world stage, the next minute he will be revealed. Just as the Lord Jesus was here for 30 years and then he was revealed to be who he actually is for three years. He manifested forth his glory as he began to do these miracles. And so the Antichrist will be living here upon earth yet in God's time, for it is God's time, when the church is raptured and the day of the Lord, that seven year period of tribulation begins the Antichrist will already be alive but not revealed. Which means he could be alive today. But not on the world stage like this. But he will be revealed. And notice he will be violent, he will be harsh. You look at these scriptures in, in Zechariah, you look at Matthew 24, 25, you, you look into the book of 
Revelation during the tribulation chapters and you, you see the environment in which this man wields his power. It's an environment of, of harshness and violence and, and dominating government and oppressive government. He's intimidating. He's also, by the way, the understander of dark sentences, it says this. That he is a king full of fierce countenance and understanding dark sentences. Now, there's different ways to translate that. It could mean this, that he is a demonic genius. It can mean that he's got incredible intellect. He can play political games and win every time. He's smart beyond normal. He understands things. He is Satan's man in a coming day. Notice it says this, his power shall be mighty in verse 24, but not by his own power. He's, he's energised by Satan. And it's Satan's power through him that enables him to wield the control he does. I think it's fascinating, by the way, when you go to um, the Antichrist, you go into Revelation 13 and 14 and so on, and you've got the Antichrist and you've got the false prophet. And you've got that dynamic duo, so to speak, Batman and Robin, but not. And you've got these two. And the job of the false prophet is to direct the worship of humanity towards the Antichrist. The Antichrist is the man through whom Satan will work, just as Christ was the man through whom God worked upon earth. And everything that Christ did, Satan copies. So you have got the appearance of miracles. You have the worship of him. And he proclaims himself to be God in 2 Thessalonians 2. And he does so by a false resurrection from the dead, the Bible tells us. And he receives a wound. It's a wound unto death, but then he comes alive again. Just as Christ rose from the dead and his death is the absolute declaration of his deity. He's declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection of the dead. Romans 1. Same with the Antichrist. He will, after that fake resurrection, take himself into the holiest of all and declare himself to be God and to be worshipped as such. That's halfway through the tribulation period. That's the three and a half year period. He then turns upon Israel and seeks their destruction. And you come to this, and it says he's mighty, but not by his own power. You know, that coming day, the Bible tells us that the world will want such a man as that, not reject him. He will be appealing, not repulsive. Extraordinary, not ordinary. Yet he will murder millions. And the world will hang on his every word. An economic genius, a political genius, a religious genius. And the world will rally around him. It says in verse 25, Through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand, magnifying himself in his heart. He's, he's as I said, he's a, he's a genius, satanically controlled genius, who by propaganda and deception exalts himself. Revelation 13 verse 4 says they worship the beast. That's the description of him. 
Second Thessalonians 2 verse 3 and 4, he's described as the man of lawlessness who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship sitting in the temple, displaying himself to be God. What's going to happen to this man? Well, we learn what's going to happen in verse number uh, 25. It says this, he shall stand up against the prince of princes. Well, that's what the Antichrist does. And when you follow the timeline of prophecy, you discover this, that the nation of Israel have been attacked. Humanity has been subjugated. The whole 666 thing's been going on. And you can't trade unless you've got it. uh, And you can't move around unless you've got it. And he squeezes humanity under his control. And he turns the armies of the world upon Israel. And he's just about to extinguish Israel from the face of the earth. Which, by the way, is the historically stated desire of the neighbours of Israel. To wipe it off the face of the earth. Iran's still going on about that. And what you discover is this, that as he turns the nations, not just the Arab nations, but the nations of the world against Israel, and they are almost done. There's just a remnant left. It is at that point that God intervenes again. And the Lord Jesus Christ leaves heaven. And by the way, you leave heaven with him if you're a Christian. And he comes not to the sky, To take Christians away. That's done. He comes out of heaven. With the armies of heaven behind him. And he comes right down. To earth again. And. Zechariah 13. Zechariah 14. His feet touch all of it. And by his appearing. He destroys the antichrist. And the armies that followed him. It says this. He shall be broken without hand, without a human hand. And it is a divine hand that comes and breaks him. And so in verse uh, Revelation 19, verse 20, tells us that the beast is taken and the false prophet that wrought miracles before him, with which he deceived them that had received the mark of the beast and them that worshipped his image, and they were both cast alive into a lake of fire, burning with brimstone. He will be stopped in the coming day. Well, Daniel saw all of that. And, and, and Daniel's listening to Gabriel. And Daniel's spooked by what he heard. It says this. It says this in verse 26. And the vision of the evening and the morning which was, which was told is true. Wherefore shut thou up the vision for it shall be for many days. Uh, and Gabriel says everything I have told you is true. You make sure you shut it up and preserve it and seal it for a coming day. (coughs) Look what happened to Daniel. Says he fainted and was sick for days. There you go, Sarah. Not ten days, just days. And afterward, he gets up. He does the king's business. Gets back to work. But he remains astonished at the vision. But none understood. Daniel has this vision of emperors and empires. World history in relation to Israel. It is that world history that we look back and we see fulfilled in detail. 
is that which is yet to be fulfilled in its ultimate. When an empire and an emperor, so to speak, will raise their fist against God in that ultimate act of rebellion and be crushed and broken as the Lord Jesus comes again to establish his kingdom, the manifestation of his glory at the end of the tribulation period. What do you make of that? You know, these things are not put in scripture so that we can become uh, expert at history or expert or even knowledgeable about biblical prophecy. That's not the end, that's a means to an end. He doesn't give us this for academic consideration, although academics do consider it and examine it. Why was it given to Daniel? Remember, Daniel is in Babylon. This is given to Daniel for Daniel's people to know this, that a people that were presently under Gentile domination, scattered, that God's promises to them would be fulfilled in a coming day. And we see historically that they have been fulfilled and have yet to be fulfilled. God keeps his word. You can trust him. It also tells us that when the world seems out of control, it's under control. That man's chaos is God's order. That God is authoritative and God is sovereign and man's chaos is like the ripples upon a pond that you throw a stone in the ripples. God has the whole thing under control. That's what these prophecies tell us. And it also tells us that the Lord Jesus is greater than the greatest man that will ever live. Greater than an Alexander the Great. Greater than a Darius. Greater than a Xerxes. Greater than a Pharaoh or a Caesar. Greater than an emperor. Greater than a president. You, you name it. He is ultimately the greatest man the Lord Jesus and he will rule but his rule will be different from their rule their kingdom came and went his will come and never go their kingdom was marked by oppression and conquest and violence and immorality and debauchery and all the rest of it like all the empires of men his is marked by two overarching characteristics which is this righteousness and peace the righteous shall flourish and there shall be an abundance of peace and as Christians that's our kingdom that's the kingdom of which we form a part and that's a kingdom which we will enjoy in its full manifestation in the coming day here upon earth and ultimately, that eternal day that will stretch beyond time, of which we also will form a part. So the world does look a bit chaotic at the moment. Always does. We don't know if our Prime Minister will stay Prime Minister. We don't know if Ukraine's going to remain or if Putin's going to invade. And nations are moving in a way that hasn't been happening for some time. There's an instability and uncertainty Globally, but as Christians, let us not be uncertain about things. This whole thing is under divine sovereign control. Let us take heart in that. Let's just pray.